0: Freemasons are members of a secret society that takes as its central metaphor the medieval guilds of stonemasons, whose members used secret words and symbols to identify one another as genuine members, thus ensuring their work, skills, and secrets were protected from outsiders. Nineteenth century Freemasonry could feel ubiquitous. Its members hailing from all walks of life in a sprawling secret network that infiltrated most professions. At a meeting of the Fidelity Lodge of Freemasons at the Masonic Hall, Carlton Hill, Leeds, on the 3rd of July, 1876, the ballot was taken for Mr. Louis A. Le Prince, artist, aged 35, Brandon Villas, Chapel Town Road, Leeds, and found to be favorable. At the next meeting of the lodge the prince was presented with a mason's working tools. A 24-inch gauge symbolising the 24 hours of the day which masons are taught to divide into three equal parts. Eight hours to be spent in the services of the lord or, if needed, in support of a distressed, worthy brother. Eight hours for the mason's own work life and eight hours set aside for refreshment and sleep. The prince would also have been presented with a gavel with which the original masons would have broken off the edges of rough stone, but was now a symbol for the breaking off of the ignoble indulgences and vices of life. A plum, which is a weighted line to measure depth. That would be to remind the mason to metaphorically walk upright before God and man. A set square, symbolic of virtue, to remind the mason to square his own behaviour with his fellow man. A level Symbolic of equality, for even the least fortunate amongst us is entitled to a Mason's regard. A trowel, which the original Masons used to fix together individual stones into one building, and which now symbolised unity. Fidelity Lodge was now a part of Le Prince's life. His good friend Richard Wilson was treasurer, and looking through the minutes of the lodge, I see the names of several people with whom we will become acquainted over the coming weeks. As I say, Freemasonry provided a network of discreet mutual support for its members that ran deep through society. The secrecy that often surrounded Freemasonry could make it seem sinister. What favours were done for whom? This would be a troubling question for those worried about its influence on the world in the 19th century and beyond. Shadow Traps, Episode 8 The Set Square and the Trowel Brother Le Prince of Leeds Fidelity Lodge of Freemasons was now without doubt an engaged and accepted resident of the town of Leeds. In 1876, the family moved to Park Square, an affluent neighbourhood in the centre of town. From their house, situated on the northwest corner of this genteel area, Le Prince was a long stone's throw from the magnificent town hall, a couple of minutes' walk from the Philosophical Hall, where the Philosophical and Literary Society held its conversaciones, a couple of minutes' walk from East Parade Chapel, where Le Prince and Lizzie had been married, and a couple of minutes' walk from Park Row, where so many of the town's photographic and art studios and galleries were situated. The inventor was living physically and metaphorically at the heart of the town of Leeds. 33 Park Square was the one Le Prince house that evokes memories in the later writings of the family. Perhaps this is where the family was most itself, owners, not lodgers or guests, self-employed and practising their shared passions of art and teaching. Having moved to Park Square, the Le Prince's school seems to have changed its name from the Leeds Technical School of Art to the Leeds School of China Painting, and I think that this was probably to reflect the undoubted success achieved by the innovative techniques of fixing photographs onto ceramics being taught there. Among the students who passed through the doors of the school were family friends such as the Gisburn sisters whose brother, John, recalled that the artist William Arthur Howgate, the son of a chimney sweep who went on to exhibit at the Royal Academy in London, attended also. Le Prince built an extension at Park Square, a laboratory and large and small kiln rooms for different levels of work, all of which was joined by a covered passageway to the house. It was there that he and Lizzie continued to develop innovative techniques for firing photographs onto ceramics, enamel and glass and colouring them. Le Prince made several journeys to Paris to source materials and expertise which could not be found in England. We had to blaze the trail, explained Lizzie. A friend, and Lizzie's former teacher, the sculptor carriere Belus, gave Le Prince invaluable advice and introduced him to expert ceramicists in both English and French potteries. Louis would return with the moufler's enamelers, firers, etc. to teach the students in Leeds. Among them, a Monsieur Fernand Payet contributed many of his own pieces to the annual Conversaciones. Lizzie would write with pride that one of the instructors had even demurred about taking the salary agreed on, saying that he had learnt from my husband more than he had taught. Le Prince's intensive study of the chemistry of colour at Park Square would help him later when he came to research the colouring of motion pictures. And the innovative colour work done for his ceramics is something that may have been informed by other work that Le Prince was conducting in his laboratory where he had set up a photographic studio, namely that of crystalline work, a technique originally used for applying colour to albumen photographic prints. This particular technique had typically involved pasting a print face down onto the inside of a piece of glass. The paste, which could be starch paste or gelatin in most instances, would dry, leaving the transparent emulsion adhered to the glass. The paper print could then be carefully scraped away and the remaining image was then coloured using oil paints on a second piece of glass, which was then placed onto the back with a coloured image now pressed between the two glass plates. To add more richness to the image, the back of the second piece of glass could also be painted before the whole object was bound together, creating a beautiful image that returned photography to the Daguerrean days of depth and fragility. The technique had developed from the mezzotint process of the 18th century and perhaps now, Le Prince was using it in photography and transposing some of the process back to his ceramic work. One example of Le Prince's work that survives today is a plate on which has been fired a coloured picture showing two jocular monks seated and sharing a joke. Perhaps... This could be seen as being, in the tradition of cardinal paintings, a short-lived but popular movement in 19th century France in which members of the clergy, typically Catholic, were mocked by being shown as human, at times greedy, clumsy, discreetly purient, cardinals being relieved of their divinity through humour. However, Le Prince's painting is in a sense a double subversion, for it has replaced satirical bite with a sense of affection. We are as likely to laugh with these monks as at them. The painting is not done to undermine, but to humanise. Le Prince had come from royalist stock, and while his ideas and projects would all contain a democratic, progressive impulse, he would always be a respectable radical. There is also a lightness of touch and a real sense of movement to this picture as if the monks who are rolling about with laughter are about to fall out of the frame at any moment as if Le Prince could already imagine a scene like this coming to life. Le Prince's new photographic studio on Park Square allowed him to further explore the possibilities of this new art. Adolphe would write Here, as an amateur experimenting on as yet untrodden paths and also in the making of collodions, sensitized papers, colours, lacquers, etc., my father kept in touch with photography from year to year and found time with kindly patience to give me my first ideas of the art. Le Prince was well served by photographic suppliers in Leeds. In fact, for several years, the streets around Park Square had contained numerous photographic studios. Saranys at 15 Park Place, for example, John Berry Lodes on Park Lane, or John William Ramsden and William Hansen, both on Park Row. Hansen's photographic atelier offering photographs of babies about noon on bright days. J. Navy around the corner on Albion Street proclaimed that his photographs on glass stand as yet unrivaled for clearness, beauty and finish. And on Great George Street next to the Town Hall and a couple of minutes from Park Square was the esteemed Edmund Wormold, whose shots of Leeds in the 19th century make up a large part of today's records of what the town once looked like. A range of services were offered Mr. Navy sold paper photographs, plain or finished in oil, watercolours or mezzotint and Sarony offered the taking of visiting cards and portrait shots with two illustrations on view to the public, one a coarse looking woman, the other a woman with delicate features, pleasing if not beautiful. A few minutes walk from Park Square on Brigate, the straight sloping thoroughfare that led down to Leeds Bridge was Harvey Reynolds, who, in 1855, had published their first catalogue of photographic apparatus illustrated by photographs of such, which remains the earliest recorded example of photography in the sales catalogue. For as long as Le Prince had been in Leeds, it had been a town more than typically alive to the possibilities of the photographic arts. The world's first formal photographic society, the Société Eliographique had been formed in Paris in 1851. The second, the Dagerian Association of New York, formed in 1851 also. The third, formed in April 1852, was the Leeds Photographic Society. Lizzie would write that his conception of moving photographs, and earliest experiments to find the best materials for films, dated back to Park Square. It was at the Park Square studio that the Prince, according to the family, had a moment of illumination. There was at the time a vogue for what was known as composite photographs, elaborate scenes that had never actually existed in real life because they were made up of numerous separate exposures that had been put together to form a final print. Le Prince had apparently involved himself with this and in his workshop sat piles of around 50 headshots. One day, they were tipped over and as the images cascaded to the floor, they gave for an instant the impression of changing facial expressions. In terms of Le Prince's interest in motion pictures, it seemed to have been a moment of epiphany. Another epiphany occurred when Joseph Whitley gave the Le Prince children a magic lantern with slides called Chinese fireworks. Also known as chromatrope. these were essentially kaleidoscope patterns that pulsed and swirled and were projected through a device known as a magic lantern, a centuries-old device that had been used to show coloured slides. When used with a chromatrope. symmetric patterns of glowing colours seemed to flow in and out of themselves on a screen. One evening, the prince showed some of these fireworks to the children during a birthday party when one of them remarked that moving pictures will be the next invention. And as Lizzie writes, the thought took clearer shape as we remembered and talked together after the little folks were gone, of the wonderful effects of transparent moving figures we saw in Paris on our wedding journey. The Le Prince children's contributions were not always so helpful. Adolphe's earliest recollections of his father's photographic studio are of a mysterious workroom and sundry odours arising therefrom which greatly puzzled me. Also, a combination of wanting to know and a bad little boy's delight in destruction which impelled me to break all the glass panes I could and not be found out. A sense of contentment emanates from the family accounts of the Park Square years. Lizzie's memoirs in particular are peppered with slight but affectionate anecdotes. Her husband, she would recall, had a most retentive memory and his fund of stories seemed as inexhaustible as our children's appetite for them. In England winter days are short and the light fades early and our children looked forward to the twilight is that a special time with their father. The studio at 33 Park Square had three high windows overlooking its railed flower garden and bays-covered double doors to keep out sound. The nursery was a flight higher and our children were mischievous little pickles. One afternoon, an elderly maiden lady of youthful manner overstayed her lesson hour to profit for her painting by these last precious moments of daylight. Presently, A little child's voice from the landing above found its way even through these double doors and we heard Has that old Gamma gone yet? It's my time to come in studio now. These were clearly happy, productive times for Le Prince and 1876 in particular appeared to be a watershed year for him joining the Fidelity Lodge and moving to Park Square. There was something else that happened that year which I propose was most likely a significant event in his life, although neither he nor Lizzie made any mention of it. In November 1876, a British provisional patent was published for a motion picture camera. Its inventor was Leeds-born Wordsworth Donnesorp, whose father, George Edmund Donnesorp, had been a hugely influential presence in Leeds' industrial community and whose Larchfield Mills was not only a centre for flax spinning but one of the town's more recognised buildings, lying just a few minutes from Whitley Partners Railway Works foundry. A provisional patent is not as detailed nor as good a piece of legal protection as a full patent. Its purpose, according to James Roberts' The Grant and Validity of British Patents for Invention was to describe generally and fairly the nature of the invention and not to give the mode of carrying it into practice. I suppose... It was therefore an explanation of the idea behind the patent with enough detail to demonstrate the idea's plausibility. In many respects, it was a kind of placeholder for whenever inventors argued about who was first with their ideas. It was by no means ironclad legal protection. Consequently, Donisorp's provisional patent description for an apparatus designed to facilitate the taking of a succession of photographs at equal intervals of time to give the eye a representation of the object in continuous movement was not particularly detailed, nor was it without flaws. Donisorp's camera, which he called a kinesograph, contained a queue of prepared photographic plates one behind the other, which means that Images would be exposed onto small glass plates, one at a time. These plates would be moved forwards by a mechanism, the details of which were actually not specified in the patent, although Donasort would later write that the plates would be pressed forward by a constant spring and struck down one after the other at a rate of 8 per second by a mechanism worked by a revolving handle. Behind the camera's lens would be a shutter, a movable screen which would move away long enough to allow lighting to expose the plate at the front of the queue. The plate, having been exposed, would then be moved down and out of the way so that the next plate could be pushed forward ready for exposure and so on and so on. Donisthorpe was careful to emphasise that the movement and exposure of plates would be at regular speeds to ensure images were captured at regular intervals of time. There is not much more in terms of detail on how the camera worked, although there is an interesting piece of future-proofing. If the apparatus be arranged to take the succeeding pictures at sufficiently short intervals of time, they may be printed at equal distances apart on a continuous strip of paper. Donisthorpe suggested that this strip of paper be wound onto a cylinder and so he was basically describing rolls of film. But then he comes unstuck. Firstly, he says, that to play back the pictures the film would be fed into an instrument such as a zoetrope or a phenakistoscope. This is problematic. Zoetropes and phenakistoscopes were optical devices which played back simple looped animations. Pictures were placed around the edge of a disk or around the inside of a cylinder, and when these disks and cylinders were spun around, the images to someone looking through a viewfinder would seem animated. However, there is only a limited number of images you can place around a disk or around the inside of a cylinder, which means that anything more than a brief burst of movement, i.e. something filmed on a long strip of film, simply wouldn't fit onto the kind of device Donisselt was describing, and he simply didn't offer any solution to this. And there is a second problem. Donosop failed to describe what is known as an intermittent mechanism for his projector. Now, when a camera records, as a film passes behind the lens, Each frame is stopped just for a fraction of a second, just long enough for the film to be exposed before winding on to the next frame, etc, etc. A similar thing is required in the projection of a film. If the images on the film simply wound past the lens of the projector without stopping, they would be seen as blurred. Each frame must therefore be stopped, arrested for an instant behind the lens. And that is why the mechanism is called the intermittent mechanism. Donisthorpe has patented a design without an intermittent mechanism. In fact, he seems oblivious to this vital requirement. And so, there are obvious and serious flaws at the heart of the design. The next thing to say is that Donisthorpe's idea of a queue of plates pushed forwards to be exposed one at a time is virtually identical to a patent taken out in France 15 years earlier by the Belgian inventor Henri-Désiré Dumont on the second of May 1861. His patent drawings showed a box in which ten plates were placed into grooves which moved forwards in steps so that the plate at the front of the queue would be exposed before dropping down into a box below, etc., Dumont's patent should make us aware of two things. The first is that the idea of moving pictures was not new and that many, many people already had their own ingenious ideas of how to attain them. No one was working in a vacuum. The second thing is that we should be very, very careful about words with claims, especially about ideas he tells us are his. Donasop's provisional patent was conceptually interesting and desperately impractical, but it was now out there in the public domain. There is something else that interests me about all this. The Whitleys and Le Prince would have known who Donasop's father was, would possibly have known him personally. His Larchfield Mills was one of the more recognised buildings in Leeds. He had been a member of the Philosophical and Literary Society He was an inventor himself. He was an active member of Leeds' intellectual community. The Donnersorps exhibited yards from the Whitleys and the Le Princes at the Yorkshire Exhibition. George Edmund had business links with Le Princes' friend Richard Wilson. Joseph Whitley's neighbours in Roundhay, the Luptons, were friends with the family of William Wordsworth, who, we are told, were relatives of Wordsworth Donnersorps' mother, hence his Christian name. The amount of indirect connections between Le Prince and Donisop goes on and on, to the point at which it seems so likely that they knew each other or knew of each other. And, once Le Prince had started in earnest on motion pictures, even the most basic research would have taken him not only to Donisop's provisional patent, but to the many letters he wrote to photographic and scientific magazines discussing and describing his ideas and inventions. The sheer likelihood of Le Prince knowing about Dona combined with the complete absence of any mention of him, any acknowledgement of his existence by Le Prince or any of his family in any memoir, is something I find quite curious. And it brings me back to something I mentioned last week. The fact that Ernest Kilburn Scott, Le Prince's assistant and first biographer, gave the year 1875 as a point at which Edward Mybridge's series of photographs of a horse in motion was published and attracted Le Prince to the idea of moving pictures. Because we also discovered that Mybridge's series of photographs were not published in 1875, but years later. And as we've heard today, the family's various reminiscences about Le Prince's coming upon the idea of motion pictures are all rooted in the house in Park Square which the Le Prince's moved into in the latter half of 1876 or in other words, around the time of Donisop's patent. Of course, the sources of Le Prince's inspiration could be a little bit of everything a series of small epiphanies stretching over the years rather than a single bolt of lightning. However, the family's reminiscences do seem to contradict Scott's claims about 1875. Which leaves us with this. A claim by Ernest Kilburn Scott that Le Prince was influenced in 1875 by a famous series of photographs that did not come out in 1875 although it is a year which, conveniently, predates a patent by a lesser-known inventor from Leeds, who Le Prince probably would have known about but never ever mentions. Was there a rivalry here? Was there a reason not to acknowledge one of the few other people who was close to capturing motion pictures and who had so much in common with Le Prince? And to complicate the story further, this lesser-known inventor, the elusive Wordsworth Donisthorpe appear to have an invention, parts of which didn't appear to work and other parts of which seem to have already been invented by someone else 15 years earlier. The story of Le Prince is a network of absences. There is so much to discover still from the web of personal relationships that ran through his time with Leeds' Fidelity Lodge to the web of indirect connections to Wordsworth Donasaupe to the web of dates that make us wonder how much Le Prince might have known about Donisthorpe and not let on. This is a tangle of fact and circumstance. It is a puzzle set for us by opportunist inventors and obtuse historians. Over the coming weeks, I shall pull a thread or two, and we shall see what transpires. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to know more about this project or perhaps support it in some way, please go to my Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash the Shadow Traps. Thank you very much.